This is the Shift Podcast. Today on the Shift Daily Podcast, we have Garth Mullins and a conversation that we had early 2021, the most eye-opening of the opioids conversation. Just a look from the eyes of a user of how the policy in Canada is not helping. Back in October, the results of opioid deaths are the highest ever in BC. We also talk about the Grey Cup and the state of the CFL with Cami Kepke from Global News in Calgary. She's our favorite sportsy person. Plus, we do Are You Okay? Are You Okay? with camels getting Botox. All of that and more uh, on the Shift Daily Podcast. This is the Shift Podcast. Opioid uh, overdoses, drug overdoses in general are up through COVID. So chicken and an egg, perhaps. I am so out of my depth with this. I need help and I need understanding because I've just never been a drugs guy. Not because I think drugs are bad and wrong and, you know, I've always sort of admired, if, I, if I'm if i honest, the guys that would, you know, take acid or smoke pot and write some poetry that was just mind-blowing. But it was just never my thing. I just didn't ever fit into that world. Many people have lived that world all of their lives. So I come into this conversation a little bit hesitant because I... I'm out of my lane. I don't know. And that's the reason why we've invited Garth to be here to start the conversation, because I know that Garth is going to help me understand, help you understand, and uh, sort of hold our hand, if if you will, to understand how opioids are in this world all day, every day, everywhere. Garth Mullins is the host and executive producer of the Crackdown podcast. He's a former heroin user, and he's in Vancouver, and he joins us now. Thank you, Garth, for spending time with us here on The Shift. Hey, Shane. Thanks for having me. So today, before we get into the story of Garth, what are you seeing in and around opioids today? What does it look like? Uh an entirely predictable catastrophe um, of uh, a stack of dead friends, loved ones, community members, uh, people across North America that's so big and so high and the number is so large. It's uh, like I've lost the capacity to count the people that I've lost personally, that we've all lost. And so I've started counting the people who are still here. Is it is it scary as a human to not be surprised now when somebody dies? Is that a scary moment where, hey, by the way, bad news, and you're like, okay, and then you go about your day? Is that a scary moment to be so surrounded by it? Yeah, I mean, it's true. You're You're kind of not surprised that someone dies, but the person who dies, like this week, just a couple days ago, I guess uh, – you know, it would be last week <laughs> um, as a broadcast time. Uh, a good friend of ours, uh, Ron, died, you know, and uh, I just, 
he was such a community builder and an activist and uh, such a solid guy, guy from Alberta. Um, I forget what first nation he was from, but uh, he's lived out here for a long time. You know, guy who was really proud, like a bunch of years ago, got his uh, forklift ticket. And, uh, you know, he, he used to quip to me now that I got my forklift ticket, nobody's safe. <laughs> and um, he's gone and he's just, you didn't think it was going to be him, you know? And he's gone and he's just left this gaping ragged hole in the middle of us. And that was just, a, you know, a few days ago. And, and, and to last night I was putting together a playlist for his memorial, you know, and, and in my, in my community here in Vancouver, and we're organizing memorials all the time. You know, it's a, it's kind of like a, an act, a political act, an act against erasure and disappearance that, um, when some of us die, that the lives were important and people cared for each other. And these were smart people, not just like waifs lost in the chaos or something as, as you might, you might hear on the news or something like that. So, yeah, I mean, that's what I was doing. I was picking out a playlist of songs for him last night. Like, and he liked kind of metal and industrial and, and uh, you know, so I was picking these songs that I, I knew he liked. And it's just, I mean, I've now made these kind of playlists a bunch of times, like half my Spotify playlists are for people's funerals. And I, uh, you know, and, and I was listening to the disturbed, um, you know, their sort of metalish ballad cover of the sound of silence. And, uh, geez, that hit me. I was just like, Oh, wearing the headphones here, just like head down on the table. Just, Oh, just like snot crying, you know? Well, and that's the, that's the thing is it, it, that song, first of all, is, remarkable the emotion inside it so i hear that but we think of them them see in my language i teach people them creates separation the words them and they create separation between you and someone else and if you ever want to connect with somebody you don't use the words they and them so uh allow me to correct myself we think of these people like they are that down and out cracked out out of a movie um you know no teeth homeless hooker and I, I i'm being direct and harsh there but that's truly what people think when they think of this scenario and it's that's not the kind not the kind that's not the situation that all these people are in mm-hmm. yeah i mean this is the thing right is like if you're poor and you got nowhere to go then you're the person the drug user that people see and i have been that person but I've also been the person with the good union job, uh, calling my dealer, uh, getting heroin, getting my wake up heroin in my arm, going off to work, working every day, not missing shifts, not missing nothing, and um, coming home, right? And you don't think of that. I worked flying out of Edmonton in a mining camp in the Northwest Territories, well, in a, in a gold mine, you know, and, and we lived, in, it, was a, it was a dry camp, so you couldn't have any boost. So the guys up there, like you work a 12-hour shift in the mill or underground you know, you want to have something to take the edge off. And most people would just have a beer. You can't have beer up there. So people are smuggling in Coke or whatever. And you don't think of some guy who was just running the diamond drill on the 250 meter underground level um, as, oh, that's my stereotype of a drug, a drug user. But um, that guy was, you know, and that is a hard job. And that's a, a you know, a lot of pressure. And you, you work 12 hours. You, you, maybe you don't see the sun for two weeks. You don't see your family for two weeks. That's a drug user. 
you know, so all over, all over all the resource uh, provinces like BC, Alberta, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, all, all in the West and all in the U.S. states too. Um, those people were going to work every day, working at hard jobs and stuff like me, like lots of people. We're, we're drug users. So people have it twisted. You know, th- that's just the drug user when the stereotype you're talking about that's easy to see, that's easy for the media to see, right? Because the rest of us who are going to work, like if you're a drug user, there's a lot of shame. And if you're found out, you can get fired or evicted. Your family can shun you or your friends can shun you or whatever. So like you keep that, you keep that locked down. You know, you don't talk about that a lot. Usually Um, you certainly probably don't go on radio shows (laughs) to tell everybody (laughs) about it, but uh, you know, so, so the, the drug user of the popular imagination is the one that is by economic necessity Mm -hmm. visible. So it's like every time you see you're driving home or like whatever you're doing, you see somebody and you think, oh yeah, they're really wired. They're really messed up. Just think there's like a 10 or 15 or a hundred other people um, that are at home somewhere. And the coroner here in BC would tell, would tell you that I'm absolutely right. Based on where they find the dead bodies, they find the dead bodies by themselves at home not in the street. That's where people die. That's where people are using drugs. I find it, my experience of this, Garth, is both confusing and heart-wrenching and heartbreaking. Um, and I feel a little bit naive. And I just wanted to acknowledge that, sort of honor that feeling. I feel a little naive in this conversation. Um. Your story, I mean, you've been a user for a long time. And if I get the language wrong, by the way, please correct me because I really don't know the language. Um, sure. But you, you've you been a user for a long time. So maybe some background. When did you start and what did that look like and where are you at today? I guess I was a teenager, you know, um, and I'm middle aged now. So that was a long time ago. And uh I was, uh, you know, I was a really alienated kid. Um, you know, I, I was, uh, there were, there was, uh, you know, there was an adult that I was in the care of, uh, not in my family, but that, that is the kind of person that should not be around children. And, um, yeah, I think I just, I just got, uh, somehow off track when I was under the age of 10 and just got outside of my own family and classmates and society. And I was just like a ghost in the world, you know, and I was just like outside of everything. And then, uh, at some point in my, in my teenage years, um, you know, I, I started, uh, drinking and doing, uh, you know, all the, uh, <laughs> poetry writing drugs that you were talking <laughs> about earlier. Uh, and, and I was like, oh yeah, this is great. Uh, like I'm, I'm taking a hammer and I'm trying to kill this feeling and I'm whacking away at it. And then uh, I do heroin and I just find, oh, there's not a hammer. There's just a beautiful little switch. And you just switch off that howling alienation, this screaming ghost cry in your ears for as long as you can remember is suddenly quiet. And, uh, and it's not like you're all messed up and high. Whoa. You're just like, oh, wow, it's calm. I feel normal. I feel Okay. And you think maybe this is what everybody else is feeling all the time. And it explains why they seem so well adjusted and happy. And um, once you found that little switch to turn off the howling, 
uh, it's pretty hard to not hit that again. And then if you, you know, if you use opioids enough, you're going to get a habit. So not only if you stop using opioids, does the terrible howling come back, you know, like in, in Raiders of the Lost Ark, when they take the cover, cover off the Ark and all the ghosts fly out and, and uh, Indiana Jones is like, close your eyes, Marion, close your eyes. And the ghosts go and kill everybody that's around mm-hmm. it anyway. Maybe this is too no, old. No, it's perfect for us. Everybody. We talk about that show often. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> well, put put clip yeah. here. Awesome. <laughs> um, uh, yeah. So it's like w- w- once you found a way to put the lid back on that terrible Indiana Jones ghost arc, you'll go back. But uh, once you go back several times, you know, after a few weeks or several weeks, um, you'll be uh, you'll have a physical dependency too, and. I got to tell you, dope sickness is the, is the, is the worst kind of sickness I've had. I mean, I haven't a touch wood had COVID myself, but uh, it it's, it is bad. And so you'll do, you'll just become a daily uh, drug user. You know, you'll just, you'll just do that every day, a couple times a day. And then uh, because everything about it is illegal, uh, it completely changes your life. Um, well, legality. Um. Do the safe injection sites and, you know, making it legal, does it help or fix the problem or make it worse? Oh, uh, those definitely will improve things. I mean, uh, not offering. So like when I started using uh, heroin, you could not get new syringes. And, um, you know, that was, that was my, my life back then. I would have the same syringe for a month. It would be dull. Uh, people had to share syringes. I mean, we did use bleach and stuff to to clean them. That was what was suggested. That was harm reduction. Well, that irony of the uh, self awareness to clean a syringe before sharing it—you can't excuse that irony, right? To have the awareness to know how bad that is and to go through the effort of doing it, but then still be compelled to do it. Uh, drug users are really rational, though. You know, this is this is the myth that people are just like completely out of it. Zombies, like y- y- for me. Using heroin gave me a sense of control in my life, wow. actually. Using heroin probably stopped me from killing myself, you know? Uh, so it's just like, I don't think I've ever said that out loud before. Are you okay with that? Well, I think it's true. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's just, you know, sometimes you're running in your mouth and you're like, ooh, yeah. I just said the truth. Yeah. Well, yeah, you do. You're like, oh, I'm yeah. hearing this for the first time too. <laughs> uh, yeah. So I, I, I was using um, the same syringe or we were sharing syringes and, and people around me were like me, you know, like, uh, probably, you know, messed up somehow, but, uh, trying to get relief from that. Uh, and also, you know, aside from the relief you feel uh, like opioids do feel good. It is like, it is fun. It is awesome. So, um, I'm not, I'm not suggesting people change their life or do anything, but uh, you, you can't deny the, just people like to do drugs recreationally. And that's how most people use them. But people who are wired like me, it's every day. And, we're, you know, bleaching the syringes or whatever, and they won't give us new syringes because around that time there were people exactly like Jason Kenny and all of these, uh, you know, conservative people all over North America and, and everywhere in the world who were just like, no, no, no. It just encourages them. No. And so uh, here in Vancouver, uh, we had uh, the highest rate of HIV transmission in the industrial world at that time. It was an epidemic, you know, it was like a, it was an explosion. And um, so eventually um, because there was uh, some medical professionals who cared and some drug users who spoke up, 
uh, they started being able to distribute or exchange new syringes and their rates of HIV transmission started to fall. And this is where the idea for the safe injection site started to come from is that that time there was an overdose crisis here in the nineties, same thing, strong heroin, people dying. And so safe injection sites came in North America anyway, from a generation ago. So they're actually an idea from the last crisis. And it's sort of amazes me that we're, we still talk about them, but it's just like, it's triage, right? It is, um, it is like uh, if, if there's an accident, you got to do first aid. You know, you got to bind the wound. That's not the only care. That's not the only thing you have to do, but it's the first thing, right? So if someone's going to die uh, and getting some naloxone into them can stop that, then you got to set up the ideal situation for people to get naloxone into them. And I know some people out there are thinking, well, just don't do drugs. And um, people have been saying that exact idea for geez, over a century, most of the 20th century, um, you know, so far into this one. And it just doesn't work. In fact, more and more people are using drugs. As we generate a more traumatizing and alienating society, more and more people are, are using drugs and the drugs are becoming uh, more lethal. So um, that doesn't work. So yeah, uh, safe injection sites definitely work. If you decriminalize it, then what you do is you stop having jail as our primary means of treatment. Like all the money that goes to do with the drugs and the overdose crisis and all that, most of it, the vast majority goes to police, courts, and jails. And those things are not set up to help people. Those things are set up to punish people. And it doesn't work. You know, you may find the odd person who said, I got scared straight in jail. And, you know, but for most people, uh, jail makes things a lot worse. It disrupts your life. It disrupts your support network. It disrupts your treatment if you're getting some kind of drug treatment. And if you come out of jail, you're much, much, much lower, more likely to die of an overdose right after that than you are if you weren't. So uh, just taking jail out of the equation is a big step forward. It will not end the deaths, but it will reduce the um, it will reduce the harm caused by the legal systems interference in people's lives. I hear you took me right back to that example that you provided with the diamond cutter guy, right? And you took uh -huh. me right back to that place, that place where you said, you know, that's the guy who is functioning and on the drugs and, you know, fears losing his job or going to jail. Like to me, it, it seems like when you change the, the legal system around it, um, you change, um, you change that guy's life, right? Well, that guy, let's, let's imagine that guy. I, I'm not going to like say his name or whatever, but um, you know, he, he, uh, I, I'm sure he would have just had a beer after yeah. work, you know? So already prohibition rules have made him a cocaine user. Why is he using cocaine instead of pot or something like that? Well, if they urine screen you, cocaine moves through your system faster. So it's kind of like the drug of choice for a lot of people who get uh, piss tested. Right. So the rules are now deciding what drugs people use. So imagine that you give this guy more choice instead of the threat of jail or getting fired. Maybe he's just having a beer after work. When we say maybe, maybe all of us are, are, are able to reduce it if you if you take the criminalization off. So this all started in 1908 when they made opium illegal. And before then, people weren't shooting heroin. People were smoking opium which is a, a much, much uh, softer version. And if, if I, you could wave, wave a magic wand and just have 
people smoke opium again, God, we would uh, reduce all the, uh, all the deaths. We would reduce all the problems, you know, but it's, it's because they made it illegal that people had to make something smaller. Same thing with alcohol prohibition. Everyone had a beer until alcohol prohibition. And then you got moonshine because people got to transport it around. So you need a smaller volume, bigger bang for the buck, all that. So the harder the police chase after the whole uh, uh, drug ecosystem, the stronger and smaller the drugs get. And so, you know, I, in my lifetime, I've seen us go from just regular heroin to what they call China white, which was kind of strong heroin to fentanyl to, I mean, what car fentanyl, it's just like, it's an arms race. This is the Shift Podcast. My mind was changed in this conversation. If you've missed part one, it'll be a part of our podcast. You can catch it online in your on-demand sections, too, in the local uh, channels. But this is part two, continuing the conversation about opioids and just a really grounded look at what it is with Garth Mullins on the Shift. I'm Shane Hewitt. Everybody seems to imagine that legalizing means kind of like it did with pot. I mean, explosion of stores on every corner. And that means you can go buy heroin just, you know, out of your, your corner bodega. So I think that that's also an assumption. And I had fentanyl after surgery once and they asked me, they said, would you be comfortable with, um, you know, fentanyl? And I was like, well, (laughs) did you get it in an alley? And they're like, no, no, it's the proper stuff. (laughs) <laughs> and uh, and I was like, well, is it safe? She goes, when we administer it this much for this purpose, this is what it's supposed to be used for. I was like, okay, then fine. And then so I came out of my surgery. How's your pain? Uh, it was nasty pain. And she says, if it's okay with you, we'll push the fentanyl now. And I was like, yeah. And I got to tell you, that was probably the most awesome seven seconds of my life. I was <laughs> asleep very quickly. But that moment was where I went, okay, I get it. Uh Uh-huh. I understand why somebody would seek that out. Um, It must be difficult to go through this process. As you said, more socialization. It was more social isolation. um, And you're dealing with the deaths of friends and community members consistently. How hard is it for you when you put your head down on the desk, you're listening to Disturbed, the sound of silence is hitting you. And so you're trying to be an advocate. You're standing up in this world today. You've got your podcast, the Crackdown Podcast. You're trying to be a leader in your community. And yet you're stepping into this war at the shittiest time of all, right? Like it is the most isolated through COVID. It is the most isolated socially with social media. And yet you're trying to do this now. And you're still going through your thing. So what's that experience like? Yeah, I mean, I I don't lie. January has been hard. You know, we've had a lot of losses around here. I was just telling you about Ron, but there's there's been, we've been taking a lot of hits. And it's, I think a lot of people are finding this month pretty hard. And I know a lot of people have lost people, uh, not just the overdose crisis, but just, um, you know, the pandemic has put a lot of strain on people's relationships. Um, you know, some people are, our marriages are splitting up. Um, you know, having kids at home, it's like a lot of work, a lot of pressure. I I don't have kids, but, but, uh, it's tough, you know? Um, but on the other hand, I, I, the drug war has been with me my whole life. People have been dying since I was a teenager. Like I've just always known I've been to 
must have been 10 or 20 times as many funerals, probably more than weddings. Like I've been to enough weddings I could count on one hand. I can't count the number of funerals. I I gave up trying to count the amount of people I know that are gone. You know, so uh, I feel like I've been training for the pandemic my whole life. So when it happened, I was just like, oh, yeah, here's just another layer of, uh, you know, of crisis on top of the layers of crisis that just keep building up. And um, I didn't start doing this during the pandemic. I've been doing uh, uh, like advocating for these kind of measures since before this current overdose crisis started, you know, when it started here in BC, they officially acknowledged it starting in 2016 in the spring, but it seemed to me it was around for a few years before that because I, I was, uh, I was using heroin during the last overdose crisis in the nineties in Vancouver. And, um, you know, it's just, I guess, how does it feel? It just feels like, uh, like this horrible sense of predictable vertigo. Like you're standing on the edge of a cliff, but you just know you're walking up to it and just like, Oh, are we all going to get pushed over this completely predictable cliff? Like, do we have to all do this? So uh, it's, it's like, um, yeah, it's a weird mix of things, I guess. We call the audience members shift heads here on the shift. And um, what can I do? What can they do to what can I do? So Garth, I'm not around this. I mean, maybe I am. I know my friends pretty well. I try to live authentically with my friends every day, but what can I do? I mean, in all of this, I mean, if you called me and out of the blue and you're like, Shane, I'm lonely today. Today's the day it hit me. I can listen to you, Garth. But in my life, if I'm going to live into this all day, every day, you know, for Derek, who had a friend who was struggling and asking for help, what can I do? So if you, if you know somebody in your life who's, uh, who's wired and you're worried because the drug supply is contaminated, um, pressuring them to quit or get into a 12-step program is not helpful. Um, I know that 12-step programs and abstinence have worked for some people, and uh, I certainly tried uh, a lot, right? And and they, they probably still will work for some people. But what they told me at 12-step is, it's okay, don't, don't worry. I know, you know, you get a few, few days clean, as, as, they, as they call it, and you kind of, you relapse, and you come back to the group, and you start your count over again. And they say, don't worry, it's part of the deal. Like, you're just going to have to keep coming back. You're going to have to keep trying. And that was okay for me because that was happening in a time when um, the drug supply wasn't as lethal. But right now, you don't get to keep coming back to anything. Every day is dangerous. So anything that's uh, like a long-term plan, um, that's, that's nice and for sure something to think about. But what you need is the immediate thing. So make sure your friend or loved one knows what naloxone is and has it learn it yourself. Everybody in the, in North America should learn and, and have naloxone just part of your medication, your medication kit, because the numbers are so, uh, so, so large of people who are, are using opioids and people who are dying of overdose. Um, and, um, 
you know, you can get training online. You can get these things in a lot of jurisdictions just from your pharmacy. It's not hard. Um, there's even um, uh, nasal uh, naloxone. So you just shoot it up somebody's nose. So it's, it's not very hard. Uh, the other thing you could do is just be supportive of the person to get whatever prescription version of what they're doing, the closest thing to it from a pharmacy instead of from a drug dealer. And that varies from place to place. Some places it's like Suboxone and Methadone, which are kind of distant cousins from, you know, fentanyl or, or whatever opioid people might be doing. Um, you know, if they're doing stimulants, there aren't, aren't really uh, those, those kind of things available, those equivalents available very much. Some places you can get um, other kinds of prescriptions like hydromorphone or something, but the best thing to do is whatever, whatever they can get is get them on that. And it might not entirely replace uh, the, whatever they're doing, whatever they're buying off the street, but it could replace a bunch of it. It could replace some of it and that reduces the risk. So, I mean, that's what, that's what I tell people to do when people call me and say, Oh my God, I, what treatment center should I get my kid into? I'm just like, you know, I've seen that road. And, um, you know, people, it takes a bunch of trips to a bunch of treatment centers and the treatment centers find out that you've used and they kick you out, which is to me, uh, like wild that (laughs) you have this, they call it substance use disorder. They say it's a chronic relapsing disease. Like you will, you will have outbreaks of your disease periodically, Um, and so when you go somewhere to get treated for your disease and you have a predictable, at least in their view, outbreak of the disease, they'll kick you out. (laughs) It makes no sense to me. So yeah, I do not tell people to go there because I just, and I'd love to give a more heartwarming message about that or a less, um, (laughs) polarizing message, but I can't like, I'm, I tell you, people ask me all the time and that's what I say, get naloxone training and find the closest molecule to the thing that they're doing with them that comes from pharmacy or somewhere where you know the quantity, you know, the strength, you know, what's going on with that and try and get them on that. And they're like, but that doesn't solve the whole problem. And I'm like, well, this depends what you think the problem is for me. The problem is that people are dying right right now uh, this morning, like a couple hours before we talked, I took my methadone and I do that every morning. And methadone is basically a synthetic opioid, which is what heroin is, is a, is an opioid. Right? So it's like, I am going to be the guy that is taking opioids pretty much every day of my adult life or since I was a teenager or whatever. And that's okay. Like I'm going to, um, I'm doing a doctoral program at UBC and I got a union job right now. I'm doing all right. You know, you don't need to get people into this unicorn rainbow land of, of abstinence or something like that. Just to a place where people can have more self-determination in their life and not die. Uh, in my writing, Garth, I always share that in existential study, you learn very quick that the foundation of everything we do in our lives is don't die today. Everything we do, right? We go to the grocery store, we get extra groceries. Why? So we don't go hungry, so we don't die today. We keep our friends right. around so we're not lonely. I have My house has never been broken into, Garth. Never. In my entire life, I've never had somebody come into my house and steal anything. And at night when Mm -hmm. I go to bed, I will get out of my bed and I will go, oh, did I lock the door? And I will go downstairs and I will lock the doors, double check them, triple check them sometimes because I can be a little obsessive. 
come back upstairs, go back to bed. Now I have the peace of mind to go to sleep. The reason why I do that is because my brain is saying, don't die today. It's just fear, right? Right. And so is it possible that if we could just think of this to your point, that we all live in don't die today in our own way, that if we could all think of this occurrences, yes. Do we wish nobody did drugs? Yes. Do we wish that we had this magic ability to just, you know, do some drugs, get high, you know, go play billiards with our friends, go home and everybody's safe? Yes, I'm sure. But if everybody could just think of this from the perspective of what if we could just get through this, don't die today and try again tomorrow. Does that help? It definitely, it definitely helps. You know, when you think about the people who go play billiards and um, that's most of the people who use drugs. And in fact, uh, the coroner did a study out here. That's most of the people who die too. You know, it's not people like me who are the, the everyday people. It's the weekend warriors, you know, that made up 60% of um, all the people they looked at who died of overdose in 2017 here around Vancouver. So uh, it's, it's like, you know, when it's, when the drug supply is so um, inconsistent and at the same time lethal, it means it could hit anybody. Uh, you know, so I agree that the don't die today is that's the key problem, right? Like I, I don't, some people call it an opioid crisis. I don't think so. I think it's an overdose crisis. You know, like I think it's a dead people crisis, not a people using drugs crisis. Uh, so like my, my solutions are aimed at giving people um, the chance to be alive and to have more control and self-determination. And I think everybody tries to do that, right? Everybody, like you're right, you're, you're locking the door analogy is perfect. I think about when people get in their car you're like, people are listening to this show and probably driving right now. And I bet you're wearing a seatbelt, right? And you did that not because you think, oh, if I wear a seatbelt, I can drive like a maniac and this will solve every kind of road risk or fatality or motor vehicle accident. You're like, no, this just reduces things. This gives me a little more chance. That's what harm reduction is, right? It is. So if you think of your, your safe injection site and you complain, oh, there's still litter in the street or there's still homelessness or something you're getting it wrong because a safe injection site isn't supposed to, or a safe consumption site in Alberta isn't supposed to solve that. It's supposed to do one or two things. It's supposed to be the not die this time place and the not transmit HIV or hep C place. That's it. And you know what? They are more effective at those goals, which are their stated and funded goals than just about any medical intervention in the history of medical interventions. Right? So when you do up your seatbelt, think, why would I take this opportunity away from somebody else? You know, why would I give myself the benefit of a doubt? Like I will put my seatbelt on and I'll still drive the speed limit or whatever it is, you know, like, like, and I won't expect I'll still be a cautious driver, right? Like I'll st- I won't expect that all road hazards are taken away by doing the seatbelt up. Why would you then change your thinking entirely uh, when you think about a safe consumption yeah. site? You wouldn't, right? Like it's just, it's just that uh, drug users have been thought of as these, like we are people external to society. You know, we're like some kind of zombies or whatever that are outside of the wire, and um, and that's why you can kind of think of us in a different logic. You know, psychology part must be a big part. Hey, going and just kind of digging into the the dark spaces, or does that get too scary and make you want to relapse and use more? I mean, because I would imagine. 
from what I've learned that, um, you know, the way to, you know, sort of cause an effect or, you know, the bandaid or the bleeding, um, you know, digging into some of those stories in your particular case, you said, you know, you were a young person who got influenced by someone who shouldn't have been influencing kids and, you know, the stories and memories and all the things wrapped around that. Influence, influence is like a, I mean, they were a bad, they were a bad okay. person. <laughs> you know what I mean? They didn't, they were, uh, yeah, like uh, maybe, maybe call the police. Okay. Understood. Bad. Okay. Yeah. But still, um, you know, you carry that stuff with you today. Is that a big piece of the puzzle? Like, did, did, you know, trying to at least close the loop on those nasty, you know, people? Yeah. I mean, I, I think that I used to just try to not look at that stuff for a very long time. And the podcast has been really good for me because I have to disclose stuff on the, on the show. You know, we make radio documentaries about all kinds of aspects of, uh, of the life. And so I have to talk about mine and um, it's made me turn around and start looking through this um, like a road case full of ghosts that I've been dragging around and uh, uh, letting some of them go and taming them, um, you know, and so they can't uh, come and scare me at night and haunt me in the day. So uh, it's, yeah, that's been good. Um, and you want to be careful about that. You know, I think the thing that's more um, of a threat to me is the, is the constant grief and mourning of losing people. And I've been uh, over since last summer, I've been struggling for sure of, of how to do that. And I, I'm, I, you know, like I am not always successful at, um, at being uh, just on methadone. Right. So it's like, I haven't, I'm not like the comeback kid who had, this rough patch. And now I'm like a poster child or something like that. I'm just like in this middle ground, you know, um, the, the doctor that prescribes me methadone said to me a month or two ago, she said, she was looking at my chart, you know, and she said, wow, you just, you just used methadone and a lot of drugs all the time for years and years and years and years. So there wasn't this nice switch. It was a slow transition, you know, and I, I'm 95% of the way there, but uh, things can go bad, you know, and I can still, I can still, uh, you know, fall outside of the methadone wagon. And I think that's probably true for a lot of people. So I don't want to like gaslight anybody into thinking there's this, um, the movies over the credits roll. It's, it's happy times, you know, like it's, it's just like, you just try to manage things. I think a lot of people lead their lives that way. They just try to keep a relative equilibrium. Why? So yeah, I do. I would uh, I would offer to you that you know something as simple as kindness in the world or having a temper, uh, not to diminish your point by any means, but to hopefully connect it to everybody who's never used drugs. You know the the journey of kindness and being kind to your partner or favorite people in the world, and reacting in a situation when someone says something that sort of pisses you off or, you know, gets you uncomfortable. You know when someone says something and when people do the awkward laugh, because <laughs> they don't know how to deal with it? Mm-hmm. I was given a, my, my buddy Brian told me this phrase. He said, there's no top to the mountain. Like the, as soon as you can accept that there's no top to the mountain, you can realize that there's no finish line that you're actually going to get to. Like this is a task you're taking on for the rest of your life. And in the be, something as simple as be kind to other people, if that has no top to the mountain, right? It's something you're actually going to work on for the rest of your life. I mean, that becomes a connective place where we all realize as human beings that there is never going to be a top to the mountain until the light goes out. And so we're all working on these same things 
all the time. And it sort of takes the morality, that perspective I find takes the morality of the drug user off of it. We're all in the same place. Whether it's just be nice to the bank teller or don't eat too many cheeseburgers or don't have too much whiskey or it's I chose methadone to get through my day today. It seems like we're all in the same place of there is no top to the mountain. And here we are, just a bunch of people trying to get through the day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's funny, that metaphor. You know, my I have had this feeling like there's no bottom to the ocean and I oh, can that's drown. Interesting. You know, I could just drown in trauma and mourning and grief and just like go down and down and down below where there's light, where the pressure is just squishing you and there's no air in your lungs and you're just like in this alien place and then it's just black and that's it. And I just thought, oh my God, I'm terrified of that, right? And I kind of realized you don't have to feel all the trauma and mourning and terrible darkness and howling. You don't have to, you don't have to drink the whole ocean of that. You can just float on the top of it. You know, when you get a little wet and you just go over the waves and human beings are buoyant. If you learn how to float, then you don't drown. And, you know, I can swim. I'm a good swimmer. I can swim in an ocean. I could swim over top of the Marianas Trench or in the swimming pool in someone's apartment backyard. And the depth uh, doesn't make a difference. You know, the the four miles of black, scary, inky ocean underneath me. It's not I don't have to go there. You know, so um, I don't I don't I haven't guess I haven't gotten to the mountain climbing portion of my life yet. And for you to tell me there's no top, it's it's really messed up. Yeah, thanks. (laughs) Thanks Well, you know what I would say, (laughs) but but at least today I'm not going to drown. Yeah, but you know what I would say to that in the spirit of the good conversation would be because there's no top to the mountain. It doesn't mean the view is not beautiful where you are right now. Ah, well played, sir. Good save. So yeah, it's right. If we, if all we focus on is getting to the top, sometimes we don't stop, turn around and look at the beautiful view that we see. Um, yeah, but I hear the, I hear, I do hear the all in, we're all in one place, man. So I, what you've, what you've given me today, Garth, is you've taken away this morality of bad choices. And what you've given me is just choices. You know, you think about, you think about choice, right? Like I know I've made bad choices. And I know some of my choices were made before me when I was too young to make choices and also by forces later in my adult life that are too powerful for me to make choices. Like if you get arrested, you make no choices after that. You know, everything, when you eat, (laughs) where you shit, uh, who you do that in front of, all that stuff is decided for you. And so I, I always think of choice as this discussion between like what power you have to make choices and then all the other things that are trying to overwrite and delete that choice. And that's a struggle, right? That's, it's not all one or the other, but it's like none of us in our lives are this completely free agent that what we choose to do is, is what we get to do. I mean, maybe like maybe some billionaires and stuff, you know, Galen Weston or whoever might, might get to choose exactly what he does any day. Um, But most of the rest of us, our choices are made for us. You know, like my choice about when work starts for most of my life was not mine. You know, it was like the shift started at seven or whatever, you know, and, or nine or eight 30. And, 
you know, like there's a lot of those kind of things. And, and I know people think, well, drugs is different drugs. You pick up that needle and you put it into your arm, but we all do. Like, if you look at your own life and really think about it, your choices, you're not like this rational logic machine robot that makes, that makes a pros and cons list of every single thing you eat, consume, do go to whatever you're like me, you know, you're this big walking contradiction of all the crap that's happened to you, all the crap you're worried about happening and what you're going to do to get through the day, the, the moment. And if you're a drug user, that moment becomes everything because maybe your past is full of trauma and you can't think about it yet. And maybe your future is full of dope sickness and incarceration. You don't want to think about that at all. So what you have is you have this hour. And my goal is don't die this hour. And it sounds like such a small goal. Like as a younger person, I dreamed of changing the world, like everything about it. And I still do. But right now it's like, let's have my friends not die this hour. It's profound. There's so much more I would like to talk to you about. Um, I think I would like to punctuate your statement about we're all a walking contradiction with let's not pretend that Billy's addiction to his social media dopamine hits is not an addiction, right? Let's not pretend because it's on his phone and free that it's he's not addicted to the dopamine hit of getting likes online. We all are in that place in some fashion. You know, whether it's mm-hmm. we don't talk to our spouse because we watch porn, we don't eat a vegetable because we eat cheeseburgers. It doesn't mean that any one of those things is bad on its own. Um, but these are the choices we make. It's today. true. They're not, they're not, in, they're not, it's like, it's, it's not something inherent yeah. or internal. It's external. It's because I'm criminalized and the vegetable eater or social media user yeah. isn't. What they're doing is legal and thus okay with society because the law is how we tell each other and ourselves who's in and who's an outsider, yeah. who's to be cast out, you know, who's dangerous. And so that criminalization, the, the fact that I need a certain molecule to not be horribly sick, like if I didn't take my methadone this morning talking to me right now, well, you wouldn't be because I would be in the bathroom with it coming out of all ends, you know? <laughs> so it's like, um, uh, like that molecule uh, has laws around it, you know, and a, a molecule that I get from the pharmacy and methadone, that's okay. But a molecule that looks almost the same is illegal. And, and your life is entirely different depending on which one is in your pocket or in your bloodstream, you know? And, and so um, like, that's where I take it back to is this is not, people aren't dying from bad drugs so much as they're dying from bad drug policy. So, you know, I, I, I remember uh, February, like we're coming up in BC on the one year anniversary. I think it was just, just today of the first COVID case. And when COVID came here, no one knew what to do. There was no vaccine. I mean, I haven't gotten the vaccine yet. I don't know when I'm going to get it. But there has been a vaccine for the overdose crisis for 100 years. And it's just pharmaceutical grade opioids of a known quantity and known strength. And if someone who's doing fentanyl that could die could just switch to diacetylmorphine, which is just you know pharmaceutical grade heroin or whatever, you end the problem overnight. Not only the, the don't die this hour problem, 
but the organized crime, the petty crime, the, all the things that probably bother some of your listeners right now. You know, like if things in your neighborhood are, are, are irritating you to do with drug use, all that stuff, that is not like an individual that's out of control or a bunch. That's a set of laws that don't work, that are trying to control what molecule goes into what bloodstream and have failed for a century. But we've been all sold these uh, movies and TV shows and news broadcasts for so long that it's very hard to shake that off. That's that's also um, the addiction to get rid of. It's the ideological idea. Well, the irony. It is a human-made problem. The irony of this, as we finish, is very simple. The petty crime, the organized crime, all the things that you just spoke of are the exact reasons why I get up and lock my door at night, even though nothing has ever happened to me. And so wouldn't it be a nice world if we all were able to take a look at that? Because I tell you what, it sure would make a lot different in the way we look at all the pieces of don't die today. Uh, yeah, you could you could take the gasoline out of the engine of organized crime tomorrow. We could end the overdose crisis and we could just diminish the whole black market overnight by what politicians write on a piece of paper. It's, it's this this is the irony is this is such a huge problem with such simple solutions. Garth Mullins, um, the podcast is called Crackdown Podcast. I, I'm i going to spend some time with the podcast here because the the change and twist in perspective for me is remarkable. I feel less naive and actually more empowered in the conversation than I did because I learned that it's not about drugs, it's about humans. And, um, and you've given me that today. Thank you for being here. And I, I would like to uh, bring you back and just keep this conversation alive in general uh, because I think it does, frankly, it, it transcends even beyond just drugs and just people looking in the mirror at their lives every day. And I think it's a great example. Well, I'm going to go read some Camus and Sartre so I can get up with you on the existentialism. Right. I'll send you a book. We'll get you, we'll get you looking at the view on the mountain, brother. Thank you so much. <laughs> All right. Thanks a lot, Shane. It was great. This is the Shift Podcast. Uh, are you okay? <laughs> are you okay with beauty pageants? Ugh. No. No. And Miss Universe just happened yesterday. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know. I just, I don't get it anymore. You know? I just, there's nothing there. It's just, <laughs> is there really any point anymore? To, to fashion to to beauty pageants i think fashion shows wow. are awesome but beauty yeah, pageants the whole, the whole notion is dated i very you know, dated i'm surprised you didn't get the clip um uh of of the the one beauty pageant with like, what do you want to do such as the world such hunger as, such as such as <laughs> i got funny. another good one here for you that was you do have another good one here um yeah i don't know i think the whole idea is dated like the bikini stuff is dated i mean if you want to do beauty pageants do beauty pageants that's fine but don't make everybody be naked i think that that yeah. notion's kind of dated right like um I think it's okay if a woman, like for me, if a woman wants to dress up and look beautiful or whatever, that's great. You want to wear a bikini downtown, that's fine. You go do that. You rock your stuff. I just don't think that, um, you know, it has to be only about bikinis, I guess, is the thing in today's yeah. world, right? Because that's not beauty, right? I, I think that's safe. I mean, that's, that's, that's 
skinny in a bikini. It's not necessarily a beauty pageant. If they want to have a ski, yeah. skinny in a bikini pageant, then call it that. Anyway, um, there was this, Ryan's talking about this other clip, this, this cringeworthy moment um, at Miss Universe in 2015. When we think of it, we, we do often think of this oops. Okay, folks. Uh, There's, I have to apologize. The first runner up is Columbia. <laughs> That's the first time I've been okay with beauty pageants is watching Steve Harvey go, oh no, I read the wrong winner, like La yeah. La Land at the Oscars. Oh, that must be such a dreadful moment. I mean, you're standing oh, there, you, um, I remember there was one time, the only time that ever happened to something I was involved in is we were giving away a truck oh, and the truck was no. sponsored by, uh, it was an old fifties, like pickup. It was like this restored pickup. Cool. And it was, uh, I believe it was a Labatt's pickup. Like it had Labatt's logo on the side. Mm -hmm. It was a promo from Labatt's. All right. And they did a, a thing all summer where with the radio station I worked at in Sudbury where they, we put, um, you know, you took your ballots all summer, the summer cruiser kind of thing. And at the very, very, very end, they pulled out the name and they'd be like, congratulations. So it was Labatt's truck, right? Congratulations, yep. Ryan O'Donnell. You're the winner of the Molson truck, <gasps> which would be the, the Ford to the Chevy of the, um, of the beers at the time. Mm -hmm. And it was incredibly awkward as all of the big wig from the bats were there. Oh my God. That's terrible. What a terrible spot to be in. My goodness. Do you ever follow Steve Harvey's? You ever looked at his Instagram? Steve Harvey is, I think, one of the most bizarre human beings on the planet. Like his Instagram is bizarre. His life, yeah, he gives like all this marriage advice that he's been through like yeah. six divorces. He preaches yeah. all this super Catholic and Christian values, and he's like cheated on all his wives. Like he's yeah, he's it's such the strangest a, thing. He, but right? he is so entertaining. He is amazing so on Family Feud. I, yeah, he, he's remarkably insightful when it comes into situations. Yes you know, quite philosophical and he gives like, he will sort of share nuggets of awesome. And you listen to him and you're like, that's amazing. Actually, that's yeah. life altering. And then at the same time, his history is wild. And then yeah. you look at his Instagram. It's like a shiny suit fashion show. It's, it's the most amazing. Good. He's got some good suits. I'm jealous. He does have some nice shoes, actually. I give yeah. him credit for the shoes right there. Mm -hmm. um, okay, so this is a different kind of uh, beauty pageant, by the way. Um, I don't think um, Steve Harvey could screw this one up. Saudi Arabian authorities have carried out the biggest crackdown ever on a beauty pageant there, camel beauty pageants, disqualifying more than 40 enhanced camels from uh, the annual King Abdulaziz Camel Festival. Enhanced. A camel... Beauty pageant. Um, yeah, well, don't you know what an enhanced camel looks like? Do you know that? Uh, lit. Oh, my humps. Very good. Right? That's an enhanced camel, isn't it? Nice. I don't know. Um, okay, uh, some camels had Botox injections, some what? had facelifts, 
Yeah, facelifts on the on the camel, all to make each camel look more attractive. Those enhancements are prohibited in the camel beauty pageant. I'd hope so. Uh, Jurors decide the winner of the pageant based on the shape of the camel's head, neck, hump, dress, and posture. If you're wondering, because I'm clearly we're wondering. What kind of dough is at large for the most beautiful of the camels? There is over sixty-six million dollars. Oh my God. Sixty-six million dollars in the prize purse that goes to multiple camel breeders. Wow. I mean, you know what? Though it, this is just like the Saudi Arabian version of like a dog show in, in yeah. the states right or, like yeah. this this kind of thing happens all over the world but it's the botox it's the fact that i've met like professional dog trainers and i've I, it's all about training and grooming right to think that any of those dog trainers would inject maybe. botox you never know maybe they do maybe this maybe. is a, this is an expose oh, for all kinds of god right every time your dog oh, wow. smiles there's no wrinkles it's a red flag. Right. It's a red flag. You never know. Uh, anyway, yeah, $66 million. Uh, your camel beauty pageants. Are you okay? Let's continue. Since we're in the animal kingdom. Are you okay with birds? Yeah, birds are birds are cool. My grandpa had a pet bird growing up named uh, Bijou. And uh, one day, uh, my grandpa was just like, you know what? You don't need to be in a cage anymore. You should be free. And he just opened oh, the window no. and let this little cockatoo fly out. <laughs> it's, really? It was, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, so that was the only bird I grew up around. But I, it, was, it was nice. They're, I, I don't, aside from like some of the really amazing birds, I, don't, would, I wouldn't want to live with one because loud. Yeah. It's loud. I imagine your nice. your grandpa's cockatiel like flying out like be free little bird and he opens up the window and he goes flap 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 and then this like hawk just, just sweeps down. Yeah, I'm imagining that's what happened. Yeah, uh, I don't know. Birds are cool, kind of weird, you know, hollow bones and all. Not everybody likes that. It's kind of weird. Um, ooh, uh, birds, birds are little flying dinosaurs. If you didn't know, uh, they also are great. <laughs> I was trying to fill the space there with that script. Well done. <laughs> Thank you. Right. Uh, what would the morning be without some bird singing, question mark? Ryan asks. Mm-hmm. Birds can also be they are eerie, eerie, eerie. Do you know what hasn't happened in a week since I've been gone, by the way? Oh, let me hear it. That's a typo. It hasn't oh, been one in so you. long. Beautiful. Birds can also be very smart, crazy smart. In fact, meet Einstein. The the Perot. Oh, I've Can you do a red wolf? Typo. How about an owl? The pretty songbirds? How about a rooster? Oh. Can you do a horse? Good. Can you fall down? Did that hurt? Can you do a cat? How about a dog? Can you bark? Fly on the spaceship? And shoot the lasers? Can you do water? How about a knock at the door? Can you help me start the car? Einstein, can you help me call the dogs? Come here, come here, come here. Good. You say it's time to go. 
I want that bird. <laughs> That's amazing. Holy. Um, okay, but what if your bird had a potty mouth? That would be a problem. <laughs> Try to pet him. No, no, I love it. got the big head. Big head. <laughs> you. <laughs> uh, despite the foul mouth, a similar crow was temporary mascot for an elementary school classroom in Oregon last week. At one point, oh. it made its way into the fifth grade classroom where it helped itself to some snacks, as a crow would do. Uh, Naomi Imel, an education assistant at Allendale Elementary, said the bird wasn't aggressive at all. It seemed to love the kids. It landed on some people's heads, she said. That would be weird. Um, and she added, it spoke. The bird could say, what's up, and I'm fine, and an awful lot of swear words. According to Oregon Live, because it was a wild animal, school had to call animal control. It was oh, quite no. the production, animal said, or animal said. The animal control came out and decided it was not in their jurisdiction to catch the crow. Not our what? problem. Good luck with that. <laughs> it's your animal control. What yeah. you, what's so, the, anyway, Okay. They tried to catch the crow. Everyone came to watch because the crow kept talking. Seemed to enjoy all the attention. Uh, playfully chasing kids around the track as well. Cosmo is, uh, the bird is free and back home. And the children of Allendale have made a lifelong friend. Except for the ones who got nightmares from birds landing on their head. That's weird. Or swearing at them. Did you see the little hat they made for him? They made a little Santa hat for him. Oh, really? It's adorable. It seems like a nice bird. But I didn't even know that crows could mimic. I didn't know that. I'm just used to that. hearing. Ah. That's my Catherine impression figures of a crow. That, that's very good. Catherine figures you're very funny with your foul mouth. Oh, my God. I didn't even. <laughs> I should have t- owned that one, but I didn't even <laughs> make the No, connection. you even spelled it right, which would have been I, even better. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, uh, since we're moved on to Christmas hats, let's talk about this particular story with a completely out of context clip that we don't explain. Something else, huh, Russ? Yeah, Dad. Isn't it beaut, Audrey? She'll see it later, honey. Her eyes are frozen. frozen. <laughs> Most enduring traditions of the season are best enjoyed in the warm embrace of kith and kin. <laughs> the three are the symbol of the spirit of the Griswold family Christmas. Dad, did you bring a saw? <laughs> I love it. Um, I also love the, love the part. Well, she's frozen from the waist down. My yeah. daughter went out um, uh, a Christmas tree uh, with uh, her boyfriend's family this weekend. Christmas tree cutting. They went to cut trees, <laughs> and that was I the thing. Uh, I, I sent to her. Uh, you went with uh, Callie's family? Oh, we didn't. Callie? No, oh. no. We, Mom and I just got a nice Christmas tree, and by cut down, I mean we picked it up from a garden center. Oh, it's not the same thing. No. Um, but that was all I said to uh, to Callie's mom. I, I just sent her a message saying, hey, Callie was going to go cut down trees. Um, I told her to dress warm so she wasn't frozen from the waist down. And so all she replied back was, uh, I hope they bring a saw uh, and uh, and her eyeballs don't freeze. And so you can know that Excellent. it's a big part of our family when that's the only comments about it. Are you okay? Let's get started, shall we? Are you okay with Christmas trees? It's yes. like the unofficial start to Christmas. I mean, like you get the music and all that, but grabbing that tree, having it smell amazing in the house mm. and hanging up. Seriously, like my the Christmas tree, our Christmas tree is so nerdy. Like I put a Darth Vader and a Stormtrooper ornament beside each other to look like Darth Vader was like commanding it on a Christmas tree. And it 
wouldn't have it any other way. It's like a whole tradition for our family with the music and setting it all up. And uh, the star wouldn't fit on top. So we just put a Santa hat on top. It was great. Pretty smart. Like, I love it. I can't wait to put some presents under it. And perfect. It smells nice. All right. I uh, I have a fake tree, so I always get a pine scented candle that always adds to the flavor. Ah, good idea. Um, Christmas is incomplete without a tea. That's a typo. <laughs> or a tree. It doesn't matter if it's oversized like the Griswold family tree. Uh, it's a little thick. Use a trim. Uh, a, a little rough like Charlie Brown's tree, real or fake, doesn't matter. We love them. How do you feel about a Christmas tree that talks to you and has the face of a demon? Technically oh. not like a demon, but it's very spooky. The tree is named Woody, smart, and is back at a Nova Scotia mall after a 15-year hiatus. It's 15 meters tall, features robotic cool. eyes, a mouth, and rosy cheeks. Woody, uh, I don't know if you've heard, Ryan's not a big Woody guy. Woody used Woody to guy. be a mainstay at the mall, and he hasn't been seen in 15 years. The tree's return has been met with both happiness and confusion. People taking to social media to talk about their memories of Woody getting weird or to make jokes about the nightmare inducing appearance woody just <laughs> uh doesn't uh just blast pre-recorded greetings at uh shoppers the tree actually interacts in real time with children who approach him more weird according to the beaverton a satirical news website woody the tree will only eat children between three inches and four inches tall that's probably a typo actually three four feet that's a typo. Between three inches and four inches feet tall. The tree was unveiled a few weeks ago. Here are some of the best reactions from CNN's Jeannie Mouse, who I have a crush on. Woody the Talking Tree is back at the Micmac Mall in Nova Scotia, Canada, depicted as the nightmare before Christmas by one cartoonist. Ugh, kill it with fire, someone tweeted. Woody's very own Twitter account describes him as a chatty coniferous with a penchant for small talk in malls, but others see Woody as Tammy Faye reincarnated. There's something about kids talking to Woody reminiscent of Dorothy talking to the Wizard of Oz. Do not arouse the wrath of the great and powerful Oz. Woody got a makeover from this to this after an absence of 15 years, the mall manager says. Woody was in the North Pole. Actually, the mall changed management. Now Woody is inspiring kitty sketches, embroidery, tree ornaments, even fingernail art. But if the eyes are the windows to this Christmas tree's soul, Woody has problems. He's had, having a lazy eye. So lazy it had to be propped open with a pole at one point. Best not to see the behind-the-scenes magic. Um, I would like to read you uh, a real tweet from Woody the Tree's uh, Twitter account. Sure. Uh, in case you missed it, here are my hours so you can properly schedule your child's baptism in fear and not arrive when I am in sleep mode. Wow. It, it's, it's haunting. It's uh, It looks better than the old one, I will say. The okay. one that was retired is more terrifying. I um, did... Um... I did see yeah. a, um, I went to one mall in Calgary where the Santa's uh, display wasn't open. It was built. It wasn't open at the moment, but there was a Grinch walking around the mall talking to the kids. Thought that was really cute. That's yeah. cool. I love when malls that do that. Cool. Even I was shopping the other day and they had a full orchestra playing Christmas music. I was like, mm. ah, I like when malls do this. This is, um, 
Um, this is a lot. It's it's very scary, but I would I, I keep looking at it and I need to stop. It's a yeah. lot. All right. Yeah. Hey, hey Griswold, where are you going to put that tree? Bend over and I'll show you. I wasn't talking to you. This is the Shift Podcast. One heck of a football game today. My goodness. Okay, Hamilton, I know you're listening. I know you're not pleased. But thank you very much for putting on one heck of a day. Mother Nature participated until the wind. But aside from that, the first half was a little iffy. Uh, Was this going to be a football game or not? And the last three minutes plus overtime changed anyone's opinion as quite possibly one of the top ones of all time. Cami Kepke from Global Sports in Calgary is with us. Cami, that was fun. Deepest condolences to Hamilton, but oh my gosh, did that not just encapsulate everything that is awesome about the CFL? It did. It really did. Uh, it absolutely did. The Blue did. Bombers were very like, call an ambulance, but not for me. <laughs> I love it. It is going to go down. Well, here, before we get to be cr- critical of all of it, so it comes down to it. Um, tie game at the end goes to over with a, with a one hell of a run right down to the last play on the goal line. Then there's the field goal to tie it up. Overtime. Then there's a touchdown, a two-point conversion to really just drive that nail in. And then at the very end with only really one chance to try to get it done, a turnover to finish the game. Um, It was pretty fantastic. One of the conversations is going to be that um, the safety that was taken on the kick. Um at the very end, which made it be playing for a tie, not playing for a win. That's definitely a conversation that is uh, going to need to be had. But for me, the the what could have been comes down to uh, deciding to go for the field goal and just saying like, okay, let's push this to overtime when they had seen success on trying to go for it on third. So that's what I'm still thinking about, the what could have been for the Tiger Cats. But that was so dramatic and a shame for some of the Hamilton players like Don Jackson and Mazzoli coming in under tough circumstances and playing a hell of a game. Yeah. Well, you know, the Ticats have been so up and down, right? And it's always been, um, it's always been so it's, it's sunshine or, or rain always for the Ticats and, and to see them have such a great year and get all the way to here. And not only how they did it too, and the semis was pretty cool and uh, with their neighbors and then, and then to make it into this. So, you know, it's it's very sad from that perspective for them, but Winnipeg, you know, that's a beast of a team. And, you know, you talk about how it's either sunshine or rain. Isn't that the story, like the trajectory of the career of Zach Caleros? He looked like he was going to be the superstar when he came into the league and just injury after injury. The first time I ever got to see him play live was with Saskatchewan and he just got decimated by those concussions and they fall to Winnipeg in the Western semi in 2018. But how cool is it that he was able to turn that rain into flowers in Winnipeg with the Blue Bombers? What about low points in the CFL? Where do you sit with that? Because it's been a conversation point again about these really low scoring games. It's hasn't, I mean, it hasn't been exciting to watch. It's become a little bit like soccer in that um, 
you know, there's no goals for a long period of time. And then all of a sudden, you know, at the end, it's a, it's a crunch of entertainment, but it's got to be a tough sell for TV. It's got to be a tough sell for all those things when you really have not a lot of action to the last three minutes. Low scoring games in the CFL seems to be a concern. You know, I think a lot of that comes down to rust. I think the games got a lot better towards the end of the season, say for the final game, like that crunchy season finale between Winnipeg and Calgary, where, you know, you're not even playing all your starters at that point. But I thought it started to improve towards the end. And I feel like you have to give it another season. I don't know that I like this conversation of maybe bringing four downs to the CFL and everything that comes with that, moving the uprights, changing the size of the field. There are some very still special things about this game. And I feel like the on-field product will return to where it was before. A lot of teams had new faces. Like it does take time for quarterbacks to gel with their receiving core. And that could have been a lot of it. You also don't want to take away from what the defense of each team was doing because we saw the D lines really step up this year and become stars of the game. So for me, the low points for the CFL are coming on the business side of things, particularly just in terms of transparency from Randy Ambrosie. We really didn't hear from him at all during the regular season. And then we hear the state of the league and you can't get answers to really any questions. And I mean, the CFL has smart fans and they're going to demand a little more now. Well, there's options too. I mean, that's the thing, right? I mean, when it comes to TV viewing and stuff like that, you can be a football fan and, and waver, or you can be a CFL fan and not waver. I, I do agree with you that there is something very, very special about the game, but it does make you wonder when you talk about XFL and all these other things that have sort of bubbled in the background on and off and hot and cold and good and not good. There seems to be a real charge to be uh, the farm league, right? The AHL to the NHL. And there, there's a point where you, there's a point in business where you, where you fight the big dog. And there's a point where you just accept that if I just kind of ride on his coattails, we're going to be all right. And, and I'm not quite sure that, that the future of the CFL, this is my observation, and I'm not a football person even, even is that I'm not quite sure that they wouldn't be better off though, if they just worked to be the feeder system, farm system for the bigger league. It would be easier to have solid answers on that if we got more transparency. We just heard that uh, adoption of revenue sharing has started among franchises, but still we have no details on what's going on behind the scenes there. Those XFL talks were the professional sports equivalent of the CFL talking about their totally real girlfriend from the next town over. That's what it came (laughs) off as. But, you know, it's a little tough too because, you know, we're still in the pandemic, but the TV numbers we're pretty great this year considering a lot of people might not have had the extra money to actually go see the game in person. They might not have been comfortable going to a game in person. Like we saw mosaic not sold out for their playoff game, but the TV numbers have been really great despite the fact that the league should probably demand more of from TSN in terms of league promotion. Like we saw so many questionable TV scheduling choices this season that really led to the CFL's detriment. And it wasn't even on nights where they were directly competing with marquee NFL matchups. Well, there's something to be said for, and this is probably inside baseball for us broadcasters, but there's something concerning to be said when the same company can own the CFL rights and the NFL rights, and then can simply uh, schedule for profit because that's what they do. I'm not being critical of them, but there's a certain point where 
it becomes a little bit of a monopoly, monopoly on a sport. And, you know, I suppose you could say it with um, WHL, OHL, well, anything CHL, and uh, the NHL in Canada too. But the reality is, is that sports is not distributed in Canada very well. It is, um, there's a couple of companies that have done a very good job at getting it, having all of it, and and making these these monster channels. And then when you, if I'm the boss and you're the boss, Cammy, and we're in a meeting and our, our jobs hinge on, you know, how much money are you going to make us this year? We're going to choose the money. That doesn't necessarily mean that for the little dogs that, that you know, they're going to get the best shake out here. And if, if you make it so difficult to even watch some of these games, people will turn to a sport that is more accessible. And we're starting to see more soccer, more interest in soccer on TV. So that is another sport that the CFL is going to have to compete with. And they're going to need their networks to back them up well, and give them the promotion they deserve. If it's going to maybe not even return to old heights, but reach the heights that it could be capable yeah, of. It should be capable of, that's for sure. Um, especially when you look at how much quarterbacks are now getting paid finally in the league and stuff like that. I mean, there are some really great football players there. I'm telling you, as soon as they take away the two-line pass in football and soccer like they did in hockey, it's all golden. Offense city. Sounds like you need to be in those uh, board meetings. <laughs> uh, wait a second, Mr. Hewitt. There is no two-line pass on this. Still, take it away. <laughs> Um, okay, speaking of hockey, uh, the World Junior team has been, um, uh, there's been some announcement on a roster, which is cool, because there's some cool, cool cats that are going. There's some really interesting players on this team. Uh, nine cuts today for a 25-person roster. Remember, Jack Thompson was an automatic cut because he missed selection camp due to COVID protocol. He was a player that Scott Salmon said needed to play his way onto this roster. Unfortunately, he missed that opportunity. Damon Hunt is a player who likely would have made this team, but he got hurt in one of the games against the U Sports All-Stars. So unfortunately, he is left off that roster. Probably the biggest surprise is that Hendricks Lapierre will not be repping the Maple Leaf in Edmonton later this month surprising considering he has nhl experience he's a bit more of a veteran guy and on i mean the name that everyone is going to be talking about 16 year old connor bedard joining the likes of crosby gretzky lindros spezza calgary legend jay bowmeister as a 16 year old playing at the world juniors even if he doesn't get a ton of playing time there that's going to be great experience for him because we're absolutely going to see him return in the years down the road connor v2 they say so <laughs> yeah you know what he name dropped connor in one of his availabilities this week he's like yeah, connor's averaging two points a game in the nhl maybe i can do that here wow that's cool. It's exciting offensively, but I will say um, maybe not so much what I've seen from him in the two games against the U Sports All-Stars, a very small sample size. But in the WHL, for every nasty goal he has, he's usually good for an icky turnover or two each yeah. game. But they've got some pretty stellar defensemen on this team who can hopefully bail him out should that happen on the international stage. In all fairness, uh, to, I agree with you. In all fairness, the um, he also just was able to get his driver's license, I believe. So <laughs> it's pretty good. <laughs> I could add a couple of turnovers for 16. Uh, this is amazing. Cami Kepke, Global Calgary. Um, thank you for taking the time. Um, have fun on in your TV land. Thank you so much for having me. I hope to chat more juniors with you soon and get out to a game with you soon. Yes, we should do that. I look forward to it. We'll talk in a bit. Thanks. 
Thanks for listening to the Shift Podcast. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review the show and share with anyone you like. Get it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and CuriousCast.ca.